This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Today we're going to try and combine, or at least we're going to introduce it, the combination between Hanukkah and this week's parasha, which is Yosef HaTzadik in um, Egypt. And what's very interesting is to see the progression of dreams in the Torah. The progression of visions and dreams in the Torah. It's amazing progression. So uh, this coming week, Sunday, Sunday night, we're going to celebrate the happy holiday of Hanukkah. We celebrate the miracles that Hashem performed for us to continue our unique way of life, a life full of meaning and purpose in serving Hashem. We will also read the coming Torah portions, which deal with Joseph and eventually the dreams of the baker and the butler and eventually the dreams of Pharaoh. and also. This week, especially with dreaming, the dreams of Yosef himself, dreams of Joseph, Yosef. And there seems to be a drastic transition in the way a person receives messages from Hashem in the Torah. So whereas you have prophetic visions like Abraham, Abraham Avinu had prophetic visions of Marseille, called a Marseille, something that you can see in the, in the dark, in the night, in a dream, but it was a Marseille. It's like a prophetic vision. And Yitzhak and Yaakov, Yaakov especially had the dream of the ladder, and then he sees the angel in his dream, and Hashem tells him to go back to Israel, and he fights the, we talked about last week, he fights this angel. So these are machzeh. What's a machzeh? It's a prophetic dream. Whereas we find that later on, Yosef has a dream which is not prophetic. It doesn't seem to be prophetic. It's like a regular dream. It's a dream when he sees, and he interprets his dream. The brothers, and they interpret the dream, the brothers are going to bow down to him. That's a dream which is not, doesn't say that God spoke to him, doesn't say an angel spoke to him. It's like a regular dream. And that's the difference. And then it, then we talk about non-Jews dreaming, which is the butler and the baker, and then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, dreaming. No, we're talking about the Torah. It's, it's a book of uh, Jewish history, a book of Jewish morality, a book of Jewish ethics. Why are we worried about the dreams of other people? And here we have a very, very important underlying theme, which is not much talked about. And that is, the, so, so let's just recap. Some of them, we have prophetic dreams. The Machzeh, dreamt by Abraham, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Isaac, and Jacob. Number two, we have dreams whose meanings are understood as dreams of uh, Yaakov and later on Yosef. And then we have dreams whose meanings are not understood, and we need someone else to interpret the dream. By a third party, as in the case of the butler, the baker, and Pharaoh, which was explained by Yosef. There's also a change in the identity of the dreamer. Earlier, the Torah informs us the dreams of our forebears of Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, all the, all the Jewish forebears. And now, all of a sudden, we're told about the dreams of these Egyptians, the baker and the butler and Pharaoh that Yosef interprets. And there's a very, very important message over here. The exiled Yosef who's living now in Egypt, does not have any more of his own dreams. Rather, he's interpreting the dreams of the people he lives with. It's not his own dreams anymore. He actualizes, in the case of Pharaoh especially, he actualizes the dream of Pharaoh. He's actualizing a foreign dream. This is wild. This is a very important idea. The Torah hints here to future exiles. Yosef is the symbol of Jews in exile. What is Yosef doing in Egypt? He's actualizing the dreams of Pharaoh, the Egyptian king. Instead of actualizing a Jewish dream, he's actualizing the dream of Pharaoh. 
This is hints of the future exiles the Jewish people will undergo. In the various exiles, the Jews will cease to dream their own dreams. They will no longer dream about their religious and spiritual yearnings. They will become occupied with interpreting and fulfilling the dreams of other nations. How many Jews live abroad and trying, you know, they're working in the government, they're uh, ministers of the government, they're foreign uh, secretaries and other high places. What are they doing? They're actualizing the dreams of other nations. This is wild. Think about it. So Yosef is the prototype, this week's parasha, next week's parasha, prototype of a Jew in exile actualizing the dreams of others. It's, it, this is wild. We don't even think about this. Well, first of all, we had dreams of our own. And then when we go into exile, we dream other people's dreams. And not only do we dream other people's dreams, we explain them for others and we actualize them for others. The dreams of other nations. The Jew will help bring about the fulfillment of other nations' dreams. Look at, uh, it's amazing. Look at Ukraine. Who is that of Ukraine? And who is uh, the ministers of defense and other ministers? Amazing. And other, other countries around the world, I'm not going to go into detail. With the application of individual genius, we are trying to actualize other people's dreams and other people's visions. The great Jewish minds will apply themselves for the advancement of science instead of the advancement of our own dreams. Eventually, their dreams will become our dreams. That's the problem. And that, my friends, is the story of Hanukkah in a nutshell. The story of Hanukkah, the Greek civilization I'm going to talk about, thrived on the physical aesthetics expressed in art, culture, the beauty of the human form, the ability of the body to perform. The Hellenized Jew took for himself the dreams and aspirations of, of the Greeks. And the Maccabees fought to restore our own way of life. It says in Tehillim, in Psalms 126, a psalm of a sense which is Shira Ma'alod, one of the Shira Ma'alods, when Hashem will turn the captivity to Zion, we will be like dreamers. Now, those who come back to Israel are living the dream, the Jewish dream of Hashem returning the captives to Zion. Here we are. We're living in Zion, in Israel, in Yushalayim, and we're living the dream of returning the exiles to our holy land. That is our dream. That is the dream of the fulfillment of the vision of our great nation. So there's a big difference between fulfilling our own dreams, dreaming our own dreams, fulfilling our own dreams, and dreaming other people's dreams and fulfilling other people's dreams. It's amazing. That is the clash. That was the clash in Hanukkah, in a nutshell. But let's go back to some history. Alexander the Great. Amazing what he accomplished. He had the biggest empire, maybe in world history, maybe not. But he was one of the biggest empires in world history. I think Genghis Khan probably was the biggest empire in the world, apart from the British, maybe later on. <laughs> but but he, he ruled over vast tracts of land. Alexander the Great from Greece all the way to India. He went all the way to India. That was his big undoing. Everyone goes to India. Big undoing. Okay. He gets bitten by malaria and he, whatever. He dies over there. We don't know exactly what he died of. Some people say malaria. Some people say syphilis. Who knows what he died of. But he died at a very early age. He conquered the known world. Can you imagine? Amazing. Alexander the Great, amazing warrior, amazing king, amazing organizer, born in 356 BCE. By age 30, he created the largest empire. Hard to imagine, by the age of 30. So he died in 323 BCE. But before he went, he conquered Israel. Israel is one of the countries he conquered. 
Now, Israel at that time was not an independent state. Israel was part of the Persian Empire. You know the story of Purim. From the time of the Babylonian exile, uh, pretty much after when uh, the Persians conquered Babylon, um, the, the Persians ruled Israel. You know, that's the dream of the Persians today. Uh, Israel, they want to conquer Israel, they want to rule over Israel, but they don't, they want Israel without any Zionists. They, want, they don't want Jews to have their own dreams again. They want the Jews to dream Persian dreams, just like the great Daniel and the great Ezra all had dreams that helped the Persians. So they don't mind. They didn't mind. They ruled over the, over the Jews from the story of Hanukkah, where Queen Esther was a Jewish queen, and her son Darius II rebuilt the temple. He helped the Jews rebuild the temple. And uh, since that time, the, the Jews were under the Persians for 200 years. And nothing much is written about it. We don't hear about it. It, it seems like it was a happy kind of uh, exile. They're living in Israel. They're under the Persians. They never fought back. It was, everything was fine. They could worship their own God. They had their own religious authorities and the high priests uh, and everything. No problem. But then Alexander conquered Israel. And Alexander conquers Israel. The high priest at that time was called Shimon Hatzadik Simon the pious or the just. And he has this dream that this king is coming and the king also has a dream. It's, uh, it's interesting. So he goes to meet. He meets Alexander and it says when Alexander saw the high priest with his retinue, gets off his horse and he bows down to the high priest and his army are furious. Why is our king bowing down to the Jewish high priest? So they ask the king, and the king says, because every time I have a battle the next day, this, this man comes to me in my dream and blesses me, and I'm going to win. So Alexander goes into Israel. Simon Shimon shows him. He wants to make sure that he's not anti-Israel, anti-Jewish, because we know the Samaritans, the good Samaritans, so-called good Samaritans, were our biggest enemies and biggest rivals, and they were telling him all kinds of Lashon Hara, now, you know, the Jews are bad, they're rebels, uh, they're going to rebel against you. So Shimon Tzadik decides to invite Alexander to the Beit HaMikdash. He knows Alexander is a total idol worshiper. The Greeks, the pantheon of gods, the 12 main gods and all these demigods and all the other gods they have. And, uh, you know, the Olympics is based on the mountain Olympia, which was where the, their gods lived. The main god Zeus, I don't even know if I should say that name, uh, lived. So Olympia, Olympia, all these uh, Greek gods, 12 main Greek gods, and then, I don't know, hundreds of other deities they had, demi-gods and sons of God, like Hercules and others. Um, not going to go into great detail. Okay, so what happened was, uh, Shimon Sadiq takes Alexander to the temple, and Alexander's first thing is, where are the statues? Where are your idols? So we don't believe in idols. We believe in an invisible God. Obviously, Alexander could not understand that. But his intention was to put his statue in the temple. And when he heard this explanation, he realized he cannot put his statue there. So the high priest realized what he's thinking. He says, you know, instead of your statue over here, we'll do something better. We're going to name all the children born this year Alexander after you. And that's how Alexander became a Jewish name. Till today, many Jews are called Alexander after this great uh, warrior king. Uh, so instead of an idol, we named our children after Alexander. That's a very interesting fact. But what happened was Alexander dies at the age of 30, and his empire is divided among his three generals. The Greeks, under Greek emperor, uh, general, under Ptolemies, the Egypt, under Ptolemies, which are also Greek generals, 
people don't realize Cleopatra was uh, Greek. She was Greek uh, queen of Egypt. The Greeks took over Egypt. The kings and queens were all Greek. And uh, Assyrian Greeks are called the Seleucid dynasty. Okay, so for the next hundred years after Alexander died, 301 to 200 BCE, Israel was under the Ptolemies, the Greek uh, monarchs of Egypt. And until Israel was conquered, unfortunately, by Antiochus III in 200 BCE, he was greeted by a positive reception by the Jews of Jerusalem. He donated gifts to the temple. He declared the law of the land would be in accordance with the law of their fathers, i.e. the Torah. In 188 BCE, the Seleucids, which were the, the Greeks in uh, Syria, which now had conquered Israel, had their first military defeat by the Romans. Uh-oh, Rome is coming. Rome is on the ascendancy. And in 175 BCE, Antiochus III's son, Antiochus IV, who is also known as Epiphanes, which could be translated as a madman, I don't know who gave that nickname, began an effort to strengthen his empire from within and without to take on the Romans. So what does he do? In 164 BCE, he uh, fights with the Jews. He wants to make Judaism pretty much Greek, a Greek uh, part of the empire, um, so the Jews to abandon their Torah, abandon their way of life, and adopt a Greek way of life. And that's when the Maccabees fought back until the Jews retook the temple and purified it. And by 141 BCE, they established an independent Jewish state until the conquest of Israel by the Romans and the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash in about 68 BCE. So that's the, that was the end of the Maccabean period. So the Maccabees had a good innings. They were about 200 years, not bad in Jewish history. Uh, so what is the difference between thinking like a Greek or thinking like a Jew? So the, the famous commentator on the tour, the Bach, the Bayit Hadash, is the Rabbi Circus. And uh, he writes in the laws over here in Orachim, uh, chapter 670, he says, during all exiles, the oppressing powers tried to destroy the Jewish state, the temple, and exile all the Jews. Just like Haman who wanted to destroy the Jews, he said this was not the case under the Greeks. During the period of Galut Yavan, Yavan is Greece and Hebrew, there was no physical exile or physical persecution. Yavan was content to simply defile the temple. The inside was converted into a gymnasium. However, the walls remained intact. However, they made 13 holes in the walls. Gates. They were thus willing to tolerate. So why were they willing to tolerate the presence of the temple and the Jews? And a Maharal, a great rabbi who was known for his golem, the golem of Prague, the Maharal, uh, in his commentary on the book of Daniel, writes, the special attitude of the Greek nation is wisdom. And it is with this that it tries to undermine other societies internally. Am Israel, they sought to challenge the privileged status of the Torah. They wanted Jews to acknowledge that the Torah is not having any special status. It would just be another book. And they would turn the holidays into celebrations of bland and universal religious freedom and enlightenment, as long as they wouldn't insist on particularity. In other words, the main problem the Greeks had with the Jews was particularity. They wanted us to be a nation like all the other nations, not to be special, and then they'll be tolerated by the Greeks. Therefore, the Greeks 
They never smashed the jars of oil and they found the temple. They never poured away the oil. It's interesting. They just defiled the oil. That is the symbolism of Greek culture. Defile all other cultures, make them like us, and we'll tolerate them if they become like us. Defile them. The desire was not to destroy the Jews, but to blur the distinction between the Greeks and the Jewish cultures. The defiling of the oil is the symbolism for blemishing the outlook of the majority of Klal Israel. Rabbi Hutner says in Pachad Yitzchak, beautiful book, only in Galut Yavan, only in the exile of the Greeks do we find Jews who became Greeks. In other words, they adopted Greek culture. They wanted to be Greeks. The Galut of Yavan was the internal exile of assimilation. Imagine, assimilation in Israel by Jews who became more Greek than the Greeks. That's, yeah, that's amazing. And uh, so the Greeks attacked the Torah and they attacked the mitzvot. So it's interesting because the blessings we say every morning on the Torah you chose us from among the nations. That's particularity, that we are special. Hashem chose us among the nations. And you gave us your Torah. Two things the Greeks were against. They were against the Jews were not special, not chosen. And number two, the Torah is not special and not chosen. It's like any other branch of wisdom. So they, they, they attack the parts of this bracha. Asher bacharbanu, you say you're chosen, you're not chosen. You're not special, you're the same as anyone else. And the Torah you have, it's another book. And the proof is we're going to translate into Greek. And Ptolemy, the king of Egypt, is going to have 70 rabbis translate it. So he wants to make sure they all translate the same way. And it's called the Septuagint, and, or Septuagint. And it became part of the Greek library. The Torah becomes a book like all the other books in his library, and they abolish mitzvot, which perfectly show our particularism. Brit Milah, Rosh Chodesh, Shabbat, all these are special mitzvot that Jews have. So the sanctification of creation, the sanctification of time, sanctification of body, they attacked. Why? Because these symbolize Hashem Baharban, that God chose us. The means of attacking Hashem Natalana was so catastrophic that Hashem gave us the Torah. The Torah is a special book that at one time it became a day of fasting. The time that the, the book was translated to Greek became a day of fasting. And this is brought down in Megillat Tani, the book which discusses all the fast days in the Jewish calendar, which we don't go according to, otherwise there'll be plenty of fast days and also plenty of festivals. And it says on the eighth day of Tevet, which is two days before the fast of Tevet, the 10th of Tevet, the Torah was translated into Greek during the days of King Ptolemy, Philadelphus, that was his name, maybe probably Philadelphia, probably his name after him. And darkness descended into the world for three days. Now, we're talking about physical darkness, we're talking about spiritual darkness. So, and uh, the rabbis explain when it says there was darkness on the second day of creation, the rabbis explain he's talking about the Greeks. Darkness is symbolized by Greek culture. It darkens God, the existence of God. It darkens the existence of a universal creator. Ptolemy forced the 70 members of the dream to translate this book, the Torah, into the Septuagint. And this way, the nations of the world can start claiming that no, you are not the real Jews. We are the real Jews. We've read your book. It's referring to us. Before, it was a closed book. 
they didn't know how to read Hebrew. But now it's in Greek. Everyone is reading this book and they become the real Jews. They claim to be the real Jews. Interesting how. So you have the black Hebrews who claim to be the real Jews. And, but this happened before. First, the Christians, we are the real Jews. Uh, we know what you, your religion because we read it in Greek. The first translation of the Torah was in Greek. And the English translation is based, the Old, the Old Testament, trans, the King James Version, translated by the Greeks, by the British, was from the Greek translation to Roman, into Latin, and Latin into English. Three stages removed from the ancient Hebrew, and that's why there's so many mistakes and errors. So Ptolemy forced the Sanhedrin to translate the Torah into Greek, and this would allow the nations of the world to claim that we are Jews. We are the real Jews. We know your history. We're going to adopt it as our own history. We know your Torah. We're going to adopt it as, as uh, this is, we are the Jews. That's what the Christians claim, that we are the real Jews. They are not the real Jews. They are fakes. And then Islam comes along and says, we are the chosen nation. We are the, the Jews, not you. And so, the, so it's interesting. They accepted the Jewish ideas of spirituality, but they rejected the Jews who claimed to be the chosen people. Interesting. They took our culture, but they didn't take us. They wanted to kill us instead. Okay. So the Anu Yisrael, the we are Jews of the Greeks, did not come to supersede Israel, but to blur the differences between Israel and the nations. The Greeks told us we're all the same. Jews, Greeks, all of us are God's people. The mechanism was making the Septuagint merely a book, an external form of knowledge like any other book on the shelf, can be studied like any other book without any commitment or link to tradition. The nations of the world can believe as if they too have the Torah. It is no different from any other book. It is no different from any other form of knowledge. So we are the people of the Torah, not the people of the book. We have to remember that. There are many books on the shelf. We are the people of the Torah, not the book, because the books, there's plenty of books. The Torah, unlike all the other books in the library, is vital, it's alive, it's transformative, it has an internal soul. The Jews would study it as a book, but not as a special oracle from God, and therefore it becomes defiled. And that is the defilement of the oil. The oil of Judaism is the Torah. They defile the oil. Interesting. The Torah, the temple, the oil and the, and the souls were left. But the interior was defiled by the Greeks. The interior was defiled by the Greeks. The Torah commands that we listen. Shema Yisrael. Internalize. Listen. Internalize and practice. Hashem natalanu Torah. Hashem gave us his Torah. Reflects our commitment to receiving the Torah. Hashem bacharbanu. Who made us special and chose us. Is our acceptance of the Torah in practice. The power of the Torah is transformative, different from Chochmat Yavan, the wisdom of the Greeks, which remains external, but our Torah is internalized and sanctifies this world. The miracle of the oil symbolizes the bending of the rules of nature and the formula so vaunted by the Greeks. That's the symbol of the miracle of Hanukkah, is God is above nature, not like the Greeks said, everything is run by nature. Our God is above nature. It twisted the whole world around. Oil that burned for eight days instead of one day testifies to the seemingly immutable external laws of the world that are subject to change by God. The narrow mitzvah of Torah, or King Solomon says, the candle is a mitzvah and the Torah is a light. 
and the candle of the mitzvah is the light of the Torah. The candles of Hanukkah testify to a force that transcends nature, the light of the Torah. A world where the laws of nature are subject to change, a world based on internal rather than external ideas. So this is a beautiful idea. And from there, I want to go into three major questions of Hanukkah. One, number one, why do we celebrate a great military victory? Now we have to understand, we say in the Aladisim that Hashem gave the many into the hands of the few. This was a tremendous military victory of a few thousand soldiers against hundreds of thousands of soldiers. How could it be? It's definitely a tremendous miracle, a hidden miracle, a military victory. How do we celebrate military victory? So normally we celebrate a military victory by a flyover, military hardware. No, we don't. What do we do? We light candles. We light candles to celebrate a military victory. That's the first question. What is the purpose of celebrating a military victory with flames? Flames can be extinguished. Victories, military victories are celebrated with pomp, parades, and maybe a brass band. What do we celebrate this miracle? We celebrate it with candles. Number two, why did the miracle of Hanukkah happen after the fact? After the battles had been won, after the temple was rededicated and recaptured. And number three, what was the message that God intended that Hanukkah lasted, the miracle lasted for eight days? Why the number eight? So, so let's just uh, briefly answer these questions. Hanukkah is a victory celebration in which the emphasis is not on the physical struggle against tyranny, land liberated, or the military victory, although there certainly was one. It is a celebration of a spiritual struggle and a spiritual victory. Ideals over a physical prowess. That's the symbol of lighting candles. It's ideals over physical prowess. So that is why there's no halakhic obligation of having any meals on Hanukkah. We don't celebrate in a physical way. We celebrate by, selling, by, by saying Hallel, which is praises of God. Thank you to Hashem and lighting candles. So the Jewish people refused to surrender to the tidal wave of the dominant culture, which proclaimed that it alone was civilized and relevant, the Greeks, by stubbornly exist, insisting on maintaining their own religious values and spiritual way of life the Jews of that time not only survived, but also revived Judaism for the future. A candle flame is the physical manifestation of the spiritual. The candle of God is the soul of man, says King Solomon in the Proverbs. Man is the wick onto which God pours wisdom, which is oil, so that the soul may become incandescent with holiness, spreading the light of holiness. So the, the, the fire of the, of the candle is our souls. So it's true that with a human spirit, a flame can die or it can soar. It can be extinguished easily or it can light up the world. The essence of man is the spirit. We can light up the world or the flame can die. We see it around us. Some Jews light up the world and some Jews just spiritually die a spiritual death. The number eight is a number which is above nature. So you have seven days of creation. Eighth, number eight is above nature. That's the idea of Hanukkah. It's a, it shows us there's something above the spirit, this physical world. It's a miraculous reflection of the resurrection of the will of the Jewish people. The miracle happened right at the end, after the wars were won, after the temple was recaptured and cleansed. Why? Because people started doubting. Was God behind the miracle of the victory, the physical victory, or was God not involved? 
Maybe the Maccabees did this by themselves and God was not happy with them. How many Jews had to die for this? How many people had to give their lives? How much do we have to sacrifice? Is it worth it or not worth it? And hence the miracle. The miracle is God's seal of approval. The Hashem shows that Maccabees did the right thing. Their efforts were correct and their efforts were validated. And then after the miracle, no one could question the Maccabean prowess and the rights that they did for the Jewish people. But also, the miracle is something for us. We say in the bracha, Hashem made a miracle for them, for our forefathers, in those days and in our day. We need this miracle more than ever. This miracle of Hanukkah candles has lasted us for the 2,000 years of exile and has lit up our exile and given us hope through the exile. I'm going to talk about that. But let's go back and discuss Greek mythology. We know one of the, um, one of the ideas in, in Greek culture is Narcissus. Narcissus was a very handsome young man who was a son of gods, apparently, who fell in love with himself. He, it, was, it was a curse that another gun because he... Okay, I'm not going to go into the whole story. Narcissus was a young man who fell in love with his, his reflection. He couldn't live without his reflection. He loved himself, and he died of love sickness of himself. That is narcissism. That's what the Greeks gave us. Hellenistic culture was narcissistic in the deepest philosophical sense. The ancient Greeks believed that the human body and the minds were temples. And that the human and that the intellect could find fulfillment independent of any higher individual. So we, they said, we ourselves, they said, can find our own spiritual fulfillment on our own. We don't need any higher authorities to find spiritual fulfillment. They turned inwards, idealized man, and fell in love with the image of man. And hence, the Olympics were in the nude. The human body, the aesthetic form, was, was their God, became their God. Narcissism, vast narcissism. The Greek gods were superhuman, and uh, they had children sometimes who were demigods, some half-human, half-god, and with extraordinary physical powers. They even fashioned their gods in their own human image. That's amazing. If you look at the statues of their gods, it's always in their own image, female gods and male gods. So we are totally different. Jews are totally different culture, totally different system. Whereas they were internalizing themselves, we were externalizing God into the world. And this is the antidote of narcissism. We live for others. We live for God. We don't live for ourselves. The person who is Moser Nefesh, the person who gives himself for other causes, recognizes there is a higher reality to whom they are subservient, and for whom he must sometimes sacrifice oneself. The Maccabees exemplified this idea of Mesir Nefesh. They risked their lives for the sake of God and his Torah and his people, and their reward was Hashem helped them. Hashem gave the mighty in the hands of the weak. Man is not a temple possessing a purpose, existence, and validity independent of God. The Torah demands we look beyond ourselves and our egos and realize that we find our ultimate purpose and fulfillment and justification in a relationship with God. Man is worthy in the name Adam. It's interesting, the word Adam. What is the word Adam? So we know Adam, the Torah tells us, is from Adama. 
land. It's from the ground. Man was created from the dust, from the ground, Adam, from the Adama, from the, from the ground. But there's another deeper meaning to the word Adam, which is the letters of Adama with vowelized differently. In Hebrew, you can just vowelize letters differently. So the word Adama can be vowelized as Edame. Edame means to be like Edame le'elion. Be like the ones above. Be like Hashem. Edame. Adam, Edame. Be like, resemble the one above. That's our mission. Our mission is to be an Adam. What is an Adam? Not just from ground, but Edame le'elion. Be like, resemble the God above. Resembling God is achieved through striving for perfection of one's character and the society around us. Judaism teaches us to fashion ourselves to resemble God and not fashion God to resemble us, which is the Greek philosophy. It's interesting. Let's say that again. Jewish ideal is to, for us to resemble God and the Greek ideal was to resemble their gods as themselves. That's an amazing idea. All their gods looked like them. They created gods in their image. And Hashem says at the beginning of the Torah, I created you in my image. We have to uh, fashion ourselves in the image of God. Obviously, God has no image, physical image. In the spiritual image of God, what is the spiritual image of God? The 13 attributes that we say every day. Friday, we say it uh, twice a day, uh, the 30 attributes of God. That's how we resemble God. That's how we fashion ourselves after God. In the Shema, it says, <clears throat> Shema Israel, hear O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. We know that. Listen, Israel, understand Israel, internalize Israel, this message of unity of God. And straight away, we say, You will love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, all your might speaks of this idea of giving, of doing, of living for others. Obligate a person to be Muslim nefesh for a higher reality. And that is, without that reality, it's, uh, it's a disaster. It's narcissism. You're living for yourself. You're living for your own gods, which don't demand much of you. So what is the antidote to narcissism in the contemporary Jewish world? And the answer is today, how do we live this reality of anti-narcissism? And the answer is, Pirsume Nisa. We are going to celebrate this miracle and we're going to advertise this miracle. Narcissism is turning inwards. Pirsume Nisa is turning outwards. Narcissism is recognizing no ideal other than oneself. Pirsume Nisa is ringing public declaration that we are beneficiaries of the, of the miracles performed by Hashem, one God. The nest of Hanukkah, the miracle of Hanukkah, is not limited to the miracle that occurred at the time of the Maccabees, but includes today's miracle. And we have to really appreciate today's miracle. What is today's miracle? Our survival. Our survival as Jews is a miracle. We don't really understand. Our coming back to Israel after 2,000 years of exile is a miracle, nothing less. And that is the miracle of Hanukkah. Our miracle of Hanukkah is speaking to us today. There's miracles around us. We just have to open our eyes. So we have to reach outwards and do kiruv and bring other people back. That's reaching outwards. That's the opposite of narcissism. We rededicate ourselves to the rejection of the narcissistic Olympic flame and to the celebration of the pure holy flame of the Torah. So we 
the Jewish people. Now, on the other hand, we don't really run after miracles. Let me just talk about miracles because it's interesting. Judaism is not based on miracles. Ramam says explicitly in Yesodia Torah and the laws of the foundations of the Torah. Our belief system is not based on miracles. We don't believe in Moshe Rabbeinu, in Moses, because of miracles. He did miracles. We don't believe in him because of the miracles. We believe in Moshe because we saw and heard ourselves. We were at Mount Sinai. We saw and heard. Well, you can't really see, but we saw some spectacular things. We witnessed ourselves. We are the witnesses. How many people witnessed the giving of the Torah? Well, at least 2 million people. You had 600,000 men, probably 600,000 women, and the old people, the young people. So you had about 2 million people witnessing this event. You know, Jews, we are the most skeptical of nations. So for Jews to believe this for thousands of years, it's uh, one of the wonders of the world. That we're the most skeptical nation in the world is persuaded that a miracle happened at Mount Sinai. So we believe that not only do we possess the ability to rise above nature, we can influence the nature of the world. And the Rambam says that if a great sage comes along and does miracles and walks on the water and mesmerizes the crowd with his charisma and then stands up and says, from now on, no more Shabbat. And I'm going to prove it to you tomorrow night at 6.30, the Raritan River, for those who live in New Jersey, will split. And he has pulled a miracle, Haramon says, we Jews do not put our faith in miracles. Miracles are not the do-all and end-all of why a Jew has faith. The only thing that can justify having faith is that it follows the rules of the Torah. If it doesn't follow the rules of the Torah, it's worthless. And that's what the Torah itself says in chapter 13 of Devarim, Deuteronomy. I'll send you a prophet who will dazzle you and mesmerize you. Don't listen to him, it's just a test. So Rambam says, miracles, when they are affected by God, are the greatest thing in the world because they instill a fear of God and our recognition that God is in our lives and he's teaching our lives. He's touching our lives. But don't get ever carried away by miracles because if you allow yourself to fall prey to miracles, the bad guys can do the same things. Okay, so this is a very important Rambam. We're celebrating miracles. We're not supposed to celebrate miracles. At least we're not allowed to overemphasize miracles. But the story of Hanukkah comes to us because it's something which is like, a, as I mentioned before, is a stamp of approval. To the Maccabees, do the wrong, right thing, wrong thing. It's a stamp of approval. They do the right thing. It's something to give us encouragement in this long exile. So it's interesting. It's a, it's a miracle just for us today. And the miracle is by declaring, I'm still here. I'm still ready to maintain my uniqueness. And that was the miracle. The miracle is that the Maccabees said, we are still here. After all the Greek influences, we're still here. And we are uh, validating our existence. And we're validating our Torah. We are validating our way of life. And that's why we celebrate Hanukkah for eight days, because we celebrate the supernatural above nature. Seven days is nature. And here we have a holiday which is above nature. So it's a beautiful idea. And uh, so let's just go a little bit into there's two ways of spreading Torah. There's two ways of spreading Torah. In fact, there's two ways of selling anything. What are the two ways of selling anything? So let me just give an example. You are the marketing direct director of a national footwear firm. 
You're the marketing director of the national footwear firm. Your assignment is to arouse public interest in your premier product, an expensive wear, uh, pair of athletic shoes. So you have to sell this expensive athletic shoes, this pair of athletic shoes, and your advertising people ask you to choose between two adverts, two television commercials. The first is direct and straightforward. An announcer appears on the screen. He greets the viewer, introduces himself. Now the shoes which are right in front of him come into view. And the announcer says, these are stylish. These are wearing, these are comfortable. They will make you a better athlete. And, and, and okay, that's the first commercial, direct sell. The second commercial is, the second commercial is totally different. No announcer appears on the screen. Nobody praises the product. No one urges you to buy it. Instead, you see a basketball superstar appear. He is wearing the product. The ball is past him. He dribbles down the court and approaches the basket. Suddenly, his feet leave the ground. His body rises upward above the basket. While seemingly suspended in midair, he gracefully pushes the ball through the hoop. And the crowd is roaring its approval. And then you get a close-up of the shoes. Now, which advert are you going to choose? Is the direct sell or the indirect sell? And the answer is obviously the indirect sell. And that is Prismini sell. That's what we do on Hanukkah. The indirect sell is we're putting candles in the window. Now, the trouble is not many people ask, hey, what are those candles for? <laughs> Today, people pass the candles. Um, maybe they look at them, make it, they don't look at that's pretty. I mean, it's not pretty. Um, but they're meant to advertise a miracle. So if they ask you questions, you're going to tell them, this is symbolizing a miracle that happened 2,200 years ago for our people um, that they resisted the, the blandishments of other cultures and they stayed true to their faith. And that is the answer. So the two approaches parallel two methods of marketing Judaism are, prevent, are presenting the virtues of the Torah and mitzvot to individuals who are not aware of them. The direct approach and may not be so successful, but the indirect approach might be successful. So a person will take an interest, you'll offer them advice, correction, a true friend cares. Unfortunately, direct approach is not always successful. It's the wrong time, it's the wrong place, wrong choice of words. And so we turn to the second approach, marketing by inspiration. What is marketing by inspiration? Hanukkah. Hanukkah is presuming Nisa advertising the miracle that's interesting that many Jews who are far away from Judaism light candles. We're trying to inspire them through these, this amazing concept. And where do we light the candles? It says, Ner Ishubeto, in the house or just outside the house or in the window of the house, where you can reach people at the right time of, of uh, when people are coming home from work, where it's getting dark and people can notice the, the candles. So it's the most visible, uh, when, it, when the candles are most visible, that's the idea of presuming Isa advertising this miracle, and just as we advertise the miracles by displaying the Hanukkah candles, confident that their irradiance will not only pierce the darkness, but also the human heart, so do we maintain the hope that all the mitzvot we perform will weave their magic, somehow capturing the spirit of all Jews. That's what Rabbi Yisrael Salanta says. He said, if one Jew is learning Torah in Poland, the other Jew in France will do Teshuvah. Somehow our souls are linked. The mitzvot we do can impinge on other people who are linked to our souls. So whether, whether we know them, we don't know them, it does make a difference. And hopefully this, this candles of Hanukkah will pierce the darkness of assimilation and bring all these Jews back. So Hanukkah is a victory celebration in which the emphasis is not on the struggle, the physical struggle, 
but it's the spiritual struggle. It's a spiritual victory that we're celebrating. The refusal to surrender to the tidal wave of the dominant Greek culture, which proclaimed that only it alone was civilized and relevant. By stubbornly insisting on maintaining their own religious values and spiritual way of life, the Maccabees revived Jewish life for all time to come. We are, we are here today thanks to them. The Greek challenge was more insidious than the pagan one. The pagan one only offered us barbarity and immorality. The Greeks offered aesthetics and philosophy. The perfect mind in the perfect body. They offered us the beautiful environment, the Olympics, the genius. The Greeks had no desire to destroy the Jewish land or to spill Jewish blood. Their purpose was to defile the Jewish spirit, to contaminate the sanctity of Jewish life, to impose their values and religion. So that is, they didn't destroy our temple. They didn't destroy the oil. They just defiled it. That's the idea. So this is an amazing concept. That's the reason why we like the candles now. So the message of Hanukkah is especially important for us especially Jews who live in exile, also Jews in Israel. I don't think Jews in Israel are not assimilated. The culture of America, of Hollywood, is around the world, and other cultures today can be imbibed at a finger's distance. Just click on the board, and you get into different worlds and different cultures. And today, we are fortunate that most places have religious freedom. Um, we're free to worship, but do we want to worship? That's the problem that we want to worship. Jews today are free. Before we wanted freedom for religion, now we're freedom from religion. That's the problem. So the number of observant Jews who really know what it means to live, live a Torah life are fortunately the minority. Our children, not only the heirs of the past, but the future of the entire Jewish nation. Parents who give their children physical and material training, but neglect to provide them with an equally sound religious education are withholding from their children the most precious heritage. So very important to give our children our heritage, to pass down the heritage. And that is really this idea of lighting Hanukkah candles. The shamash, to take the shamash and light the candles. The mash shamash is the parent or the rabbi or the teacher who's lighting other candles. We're lighting others. When we teach other people Torah, we're lighting their souls. Our job is to light the, the souls of other people with our Torah and teachings and there's rather shame that the candles will be lit. Now, there's a whole big discussion in the Talmud. Can you light one Hanukkah candle from another? And because you're not allowed to use Hanukkah candles for anything else. They're set aside for the mitzvah. So can you light one Hanukkah candle from another? And the Gemara says, yes, why? Because lighting one candle from another does not detract in any way from the first candle. So same thing when we teach other people, we're not detracting from ourselves. On the contrary, we are growing ourselves. So there's Rana Shem. Hanukkah is the festival of rededication. So Hanukkah means, it's called Hanukkah Mishkan, Hanukkah the dedication of the temple, the dedication of the sanctuary. And that's why it's called Hanukkah. That's one of the reasons. The second reason is called Hanukkah. They rested on the 25th of Kislev. That's when all the wars were over. That's the victory. So Hanukkah, Hanukkah. And number three, Hanukkah comes from the word Chinuch. Chinuch is education, it's a festival of rededication, it's the festival of education for our children, our grandchildren, Bezrat Hashem will be successful to raise the next generation more committed than we were and a much higher level than we are. 
Hashem, I bless you all from Yerushalayim Yerakodesh. Unfortunately, next week it's Hanukkah, and I have uh, other events to go to, and therefore there will be no class next week. But I'll see you all Tuesday on Thursday in two weeks' time. Bezrat Hashem, we're back to Thursday in two weeks' time. Everyone have a very happy uh, rededication on Hanukkah and uh, festival education. Bezrat Hashem, be successful. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.